Hi, Mac here. Quick note about this episode. When recording it, I chose the wrong microphone input setting. So if the episode sounds a little weird to you, that is my fault. That is not the fault of whatever device you are listening to this podcast on, which, according to our market research, is probably one of those Bluetooth speakers that's also a cooler. That's it. Anyway, enjoy Pacific Rim. This week on Punch Mountain... How to form a weird bond with a family member without getting stuck in a dryer. Cancel the apocalypse because we're watching Pacific Rim. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We do not make the mountain. We just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I'm a dummy, apparently. But I am joined, as always, by my much smarter, more handsome, just classier friend, Mr. David Hotta. David, how are you? What's up, dick butt? How you doing? Ah. <laughs> what, a, what a classy bird. I'm pretty good, David, except my, my butt is a dick. Oh, no. Oh, no. Whoa, hold on. I'm, I'm getting the instant ratings for this episode. It's through the roof. <laughs> Yay, dick butt, dick butt. David, I'm excited to talk to you, and not just because we have uh, so much to catch up on with our meaningless lives, but also because uh, we we watched the movie Pacific Rim. Yes, we did. I'm excited to talk about this one, because I need some help with this one. This movie's a lot of fun, but I'll be damned if I remember a thing about it. I was I was looking at the notes before we started recording, notes that I wrote earlier today for a movie I watched two days ago. And it is all Greek to me. I remember liking it. I remember not liking it. David, I have a question for you. Yes. This was your suggestion. What made you want to do Pacific Rim? Because I was in the mood for it. That's really it. There's no science behind this one. It was just, it, it's just that kind of a movie. Like, you know, you look at the last few episodes we, we've done, um, with the exception of Punisher Warzone, but they all, you know, Top Gun Maverick, uh, Woman King, Roadhouse, they were all pretty like intensive movies in, in one way or the other. Either we had a lot to say about it or it was just a lot to kind of to wade through. And I really just wanted a movie to kind of like take a night off. Like you remember like, you know, in like the Letterman late night days, the first guests would cancel on them. So they would just bring in Marv Albert and they never really explained it. But it was like, all right, at the top of the show, we got Marv Albert and some bloopers. That's what this movie is. It's just it's just there to buy time. Until we can think of the next few movies to do. This is uh, a Regis Philbin fill-in is what you're trying to say. Thank you, yes. But, you know, I, I like this movie. I thought, I saw it opening day. I believe I saw it at the Ritz, if I'm not mistaken. Did we see this together? I don't think so. I think I was playing hooky from work. Interesting. I, I asked my feral wife if we saw this together. And she's like, well, I've seen it. And it must have been with you. <laughs> <laughs> she, that was not a compliment. But I remember liking this movie because I was dazzled by the effects. Like, seeing this in the theater was a fun experience. I remember being bored by the people in the movie, by the characters. And now even more so. Like, I'm, I'm just as dazzled by the effects, and I'm just as bored by the people in this movie. I also remember being excited for it, and then I remember leaving kind of underwhelmed. And I was trying to remember why I was underwhelmed. And I was like, okay, well, I, I know that... Charlie Day and another scientist guy were kind of, they're kind of like a movie poison. Like every minute they're on screen, I hated it or something like that. And now rewatching it, I started to get excited. And then, oh, I kind of remembered why I had a problem with it. But at the end of the day, I still like had a lot of fun watching this movie. And you'll have to help me, David, because when I sat down to watch this movie, there was something like right off the bat that made me think like, okay, wouldn't they need like more people in the comms or operations room? 
And I was like, all right, Mac, don't do that. This movie is not about the proper infrastructure to support a Jaeger team. Uh, Jaeger's, of course, a giant mechs. We'll find out later. This movie is about uh, Rock'em Sock'em robots fighting monsters. The rest of the movie, I'm not going to like sit there and like pick this thing apart in terms of like logistics or whatever. But then, David, it kept coming up to the point where it's like, you know what? I can't ignore it anymore, David. It's it's kind of hurting my enjoyment of the movie. So many times in this film, I asked the question, is this really how someone would do this kind of thing? It just doesn't seem like they would. I think at the end, it, that kind of took its toll because it, it kept popping up. Who directed this thing, David? This is going to be GDT, Guillermo del Toro. What are your thoughts on GDT? I like him fine. I think he's interesting. You know, I'm never bored by any of his movies. They just don't always hit the mark for me. This one actually is probably, gosh, if I really think about it, this might be my favorite of his movies just because of its accessibility. It's just so imminently watchable without too much thought going into it. What what are your thoughts on on GDT? I mean, I guess I love him, right? He is interesting. (laughs) He has some movies that absolutely like nail a tone. And then he has some movies that are all over the fucking map. I saw Nightmare Alley, and I thought that was great. Uh, his Hellboy movies are, are unfulfilling. I never made it through Shape of Water. I come too soon. <laughs> but Blade Two is, you know, hopefully we'll get to it at some point. That's one of my favorite action movies, at least in memory. Maybe it's not. But yeah, he's he's an interesting dude. And I mean, he just won an Oscar for uh, animated film Pinocchio. I, I kind of realize, realize that Guillermo del Toro is like a blank Tim Burton in a way, because I feel like they have sort of similar careers, but then kind of like dip in to mainstream stuff, dip out, but they have like whatever they do, they kind of bring a unique kind of style to it. If Tim Burton is the goth Guillermo del Toro, what is Guillermo del Toro? Okay, let's let's put it this way. Let's let's use some compass points. Let's say we're at the Mall of Directors and Tim Burton is hot topic. I think Guillermo del Toro is the sharper image of directors. I can't decide if he's the pulp Tim Burton or if he's the pulp sci-fi Tim Burton. In the end, it doesn't really matter, but but yeah, this feels like a Guillermo del Toro movie, and it feels like a GDT movie for a lot of good, fun reasons. And so we'll talk about that as we get into it. David, before we go any farther, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Pacific Rim on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions, so we'll do some quickly provided answers. All right, what is Pacific Rim 3 called? Well, I moved the 3 to the word rim, and now it's Pacific Rhyme. Also, there is no Pacific Rim 3 at the moment, so shut the fuck up. David, why was Pacific Rim so good? <laughs> I call bullshit, Google. No one is, this is a question people are frequently typing in. I don't know. David, why was Pacific Rim so good? The same thing that makes everything good, butter. Mac, is Pacific Rim connected to Godzilla? Not really. They fucked once in college. David, is Pacific Rim 3 being made? Uh, let's hope so, in the same way that Joe Pesci was made in Goodfellas. Hey, David, before we watch two mech pilots link minds to battle massive monsters, let's listen as two friends link hearts to battle everyday problems. It's a friendship check-in. Our friendship. How are you, David? I'm doing well, my drift partner. Uh, I've got a fun story for you that relates to our last episode. That was episode 20, Roadhouse, where I was talking about, you know, I had my drink routine, which I have since altered back to coffee and Coca-Cola. Uh, but I had a little bit of, uh, you know, I had a little whiskey during the episode recording. I had a, a real fun time. I hope that comes through in the episode and not uh, any sort of slurring. But after the show, you know, I, I was having fun. So I decided, you know what, I'll have, a, I'll have a second drink. And I rarely even have a first drink anymore. So, you know, I figured I'd, I'd keep the party going. Well, fast forward to me the next morning waking up and my lights are on and the phone is next to me on the bed. And I'm like, oh, no, what has happened? So... I check my my bank account. Bank account's fine. I check my messages. Didn't send anything regrettable. Awesome. Go through a few more apps. Come to find out, I had checked out a library book, Mac. That was <laughs> I was so relieved to find out 
I, I'm 43 years old, and the, the scariest thing I do when I'm drunk is I'll check out a library book. What was the book, David? The book was called A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America by Bruce Cannon Gibney. Yeah, that seems like a drunk uh, library rental. <laughs> <laughs> Not like kind of a, a funny drunk, more like, hey, you fucking boomers. We got to get to the bottom of this. Man, what if you drunkenly rented a book from the library and when it arrived, it's a book that you wrote? Whoa, twist. While drunk, I guess. Like a Dr. Detroit sort of thing, but I'm a successful author. How are you, Mac Blake? I am doing good. David, you might recall that on a previous episode, I talked about some fans of this podcast that I bumped into IRL in real life on occasion. And uh, their names are Keenan and Taylor. And they refer to themselves as the boys K&T, which they refer to themselves as that because that's how I referred to them on a previous episode. David, I'm going to straight up be honest with you. My hearing is not as good as your average person's. And my, my brain, like most people's brains, will be like, oh, they probably said this. And it's 90% of uh, the time it is wrong. He's like, yeah, where are your boys' canteen? I thought they called themselves the boys' cantina uh, after everything was sorted out. I was left with this question. Well, would they rather be known as the boys' canteen or would they rather be known as the boys' cantina because it's a pretty cool nickname? Of course. And I said, balls in your court, fellas. Anyway, we finally got an email back from uh, T himself, and he says, <laughs> if we're going to keep stalking you, and believe me, we are, we definitely need a badass name. The boys' cantina is rad as hell. Just don't forget the Z, or else it sounds dumb. With love, the boys formerly known as K&T. So look, if you listen to this podcast, and you want a fun nickname, all you got to do is uh, run into me twice, and uh, you'll get one. That's not a bad deal, because then once we start grouping off into like some sort of running man type competition, you know, we'll have a lot of groups in our stable. Now, the question is, the boys' canteen. Let's say other people want to join the boys' cantina. Is that allowed? Do you, do you have to know them? I almost said physically. You have to know them personally? Or is, is the boys' cantina just a two-member group? I don't know. It's up to the boys' cantina. But anyway, I hope, uh, I hope the boys' cantina is doing great. And speaking of doing great, are we doing this thing? We're heading to the breach, Mac. We're going in. All right, David, just a level set. Can you give people the back-of-the-box description? You bet I can. When legions of monstrous alien creatures started rising from the sea, a deadly war began. To combat them, humans devised massive robots called Jaegers as weapons. But even the Jaegers proved nearly defenseless against the creatures. Now on the verge of defeat, mankind must turn to two unlikely heroes, teamed in a seemingly obsolete Jaeger as the last hope against a mounting apocalypse. 2013, 131 Minutes, directed by Guillermo del Toro, rated PG-13 for sequences of intense sci-fi action and violence throughout, and brief language. Not a bad back of the box, but when they, they uh, phrase it like that, it seems like we don't got a lot of, got a, much of a chance. Two unlikely heroes, a shitty Jaeger, the, a mounting apocalypse. Like, oh, okay, you know what? What's plan B on this? Actually, I know the plan B because I watched this movie. It was a fucking wall. Well, I also don't know if they're unlikely heroes. Like one used to be a badass Jaeger pilot. The other one is like a prized pupil. It's not like rookie of the year where someone like broke their arm and suddenly they could pilot a Jaeger. Wait, hold on. The two people that were specifically trained to do this job were chosen to do this job? Unlikely. All right, David, how's this movie begin? Oh, Mac, we open with a kaiju history montage. Massive alien creatures called kaiju appear from The Breach, a dimensional portal deep in the ocean. Since all these kaiju want to do is have some fun, meaning destroy cities, humans build equally massive robot suits called Jaegers. These human-piloted mechas kick kaiju ass mm, for a while. This is all told to us in voiceover by the hero of our story, Raleigh Beckett, played by Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, and we'll get a little bit of that introductory VO right here. When alien life entered our world, it was from deep beneath the Pacific Ocean. A fissure between two tectonic plates. A portal 
between dimensions. The breach. I was 15 when the first kaiju made land in San Francisco. David, I thought this was a hot opening. I liked all this stuff. Like this, I mean, because the movie could have just like dropped us into this world without all this backstory. Or it could have, we could have opened up like the day the kaiju attacked and, and then had to waste time with that. But instead, we get like an alternate history quickly delivered with like a lot of cool visuals. Like there's a shot after they beat the first kaiju, we see its skull in a museum. And it's like, you know, you you get the idea of like, okay, if these giant monsters were to attack a real world, how would it affect us? And, and I thought it was a, it was well-paced and kind of just grabbed me from the get-go. This is a very helpful opening. This is an excellent opening as far as fitting a lot into a little bit of time. Like, it, you know, the introduction almost betrays the rest of the movie because the rest of the movie in stretches will take its time getting through some stuff. But this one, like, it was a great way to hook you from the very beginning because, yeah, you're sitting there, you know, you get a POV shot of people sitting in their cars on the Golden Gate Bridge when the first kaiju attacks, but you don't spend too much time with it. Like, you're just kind of picking and choosing the past several years of kaiju-Jaeger relations to the point where you're even seeing, like, the pilots of Jaegers become rock stars and kaiju are turned into toys and mascots. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, think, uh, I think hubris would definitely play a factor in, in the way we handle kaiju. I mean, it feels pretty grounded to me, David. Like, for example, there's uh, that MLS team called the New York 9-11s, you know, and um, that's how we would treat disaster. We would eventually make them our, our fun sports mascots. We catch up with Raleigh. Remember him? He's played by Charlie Hunnam. He's preparing his Jaeger for battle alongside his brother Yancey, played by We Don't Need to Know, because Yancey will be dead before the end of this intro. Project leader, Marshall Stacker Pentecost, played by Idris Elba, orders the Beckett boys to suit up to face off against a kaiju named Knifehead. It's an action set piece we'll call Round 1. Gypsy Danger versus Knifehead. Fight. All right, David, let's talk about the name of their Jaeger, Gypsy Danger. Now, David, I normally would be not a huge fan of saying the name Gypsy, because it turns out, as I feel like a lot of people know by now, G-Y-P-S-Y is kind of a slur for the this group of people. Mm-hmm, right. However, did you watch this with subtitles on this movie, David? Uh, I did watch this with subtitles on, yes. Yeah, but Gypsy Danger is spelled G-I-P-S-Y. And I was like, why is it spelled like that? That's how the Gypsy Kings spell it. Is this Jaeger named after the <laughs> flamenco group, the Gypsy Kings? <laughs> but no, David, it's actually the Pacific Rim's Gypsy Danger is not spelled with a Y because it's named after the de Havilland Gypsy, G-I-P-S-Y, a plane engine invented in 1927. That is a huge relief. Yeah, I had struggled with with calling this, with referring to this throughout the show. In fact, in my notes initially, I had put oopsie danger uh, because I also thought that Charlie Hunnam had said that at one point in the movie, and I thought that was great. But yeah, gypsy danger, if, if there's some uh, lineage behind it, then I'm fine with it. And the other combatant here is named Knifehead. Let's talk about these kaiju nicknames. Let me ask you because you're you're very helpful about that. I didn't know the animal animal. The, I didn't know the kaiju's name was Knifehead. Was that featured at any point in the movie, or is this just your awesome research skills? Most of the time, the kaiju nicknames they will say them very quickly. I think the the one at the end, the very our, our, our final boss, the category five one. I had to. I don't think they say that in the movie Slattern or whatever, but I had to look it up. So, for example, what will happen is they'll be like oh, kaiju. Oh, uh, we, we we got his, uh, his codenamed uh, Knifehead. And it was like, all right, I, I guess you very quickly saw this guy and had to give him a name or something. But sometimes they don't even like see these dudes and they're just like doing what? Like picking names out of a hat? I don't know. But this guy does seem like he has a knife for a head. And honestly, I mean, maybe it's just 
if there's two kaiju, you want to be very clear, like which one you're talking about. So sure, give them some code names. But I, I don't know how they got uh, call like a knife head. I don't know if there's somebody who's like in a helicopter above the action, like who's uh, he's the official uh, nickname namer. Well, see, okay, you're being very helpful in this moment because this was one of the things I struggled with throughout the movie. You know, I wasn't familiar with any of their names. I, I felt like throughout the movie, these kaiju needed a personality, even if it was as simple as like a freeze frame and a name and some statistics or something like that. But like, you know, like you said, this one's called Knife Head. So you hope it has a knife for a head, but then you get to the the rest of the kaiju throughout the movie. Like I wanted sort of a He-Man type universe where, oh, that's Manny Faces. He has many faces. That's Man-at-Arms. He's got big arms. But, the, you know, Slattern? What are we doing? I Yeah. Exactly. It's like you see a hammerhead shark and you're like, mm, hammerhead shark. But then you see another shark and you're like, I'm going to call this one blood sword and they're like wait what the fuck are you talking about here man Let's contact jody foster's character said they should have sent a poet and i think this jaeger project does have a poet on its staff or at least someone who's coming up with heavy metal band names <laughs> david so our hero here is raleigh beckett played by charlie hunnam i watched every fucking episode of sons of anarchy even though i think somewhere between the second to last season i realized i hated the show is Charlie Hunnam cheesy in everything he does, or is it just he's cheesy in everything he has to do an American accent in? He's cheesy in everything he has to do an American accent in. Because, yeah, you know, I've seen him in stuff where he's comfortable, and he's fun to watch. He's very engaging and charming. He's not comfortable doing an American accent. He's also, you know, you'll see this a lot when you get European actors trying to emulate, especially, like, American action stars. Like, it feels like this movie wanted a Kurt Russell but that's a big ask to have someone not only break through a language barrier or an accent barrier, but also emulate a really like iconic type presence. He's he's uh, he's painful to watch at times throughout this movie. Yeah, agreed. But I will say this, David, he's a fucking hunk. And we understand the value of a good hunk in an action movie. So the way these Jaegers work is it's too much of a mental load for one person to be inside this robot suit piloting it. And so the, how they do it is they use this process called the drift to form a neural handshake. It requires two people to link their minds and control the Jaeger together. Jaeger, of course, German for hunter, hunter of a spicy liqueur. It, and it's also revealed that like, oh, uh, it works best with like siblings. So that is why, you know, Yancey, who uh, he will soon die, is teamed up with Charlie Hunnam's Raleigh. I kind of like this drift idea because it, it kind of fits with Guillermo del Toro because he's like a a weird kind of funky process, dude. Like it's not enough for him to like in Blade 2 for him to be like, okay, we have a, a mega vampire who feeds other vampires. It's like, nah, we got to cut him open in an autopsy scene. And we got to talk about how these like vampires work physically. So the fact that he's added kind of like an extra sci-fi process, it's kind of a little bit unnecessary. Like all you got to do is tell me like, oh, this dude, uh, he pilots a giant mecha robot. I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. Like when the Power Rangers are in their Megazord or whatever, I'm not like, well, how do they do that? You know, it's, it's fine. Yeah. But the fact that he wanted to go and sort of create this kind of, uh, I don't know, plot device, the drift, I, I thought it was it was neat. I mean, how, how did you understand it, David? That basically they're like, they can hear each other's thoughts? Basically, it's a two become one is my understanding. Like they share their memories and by sharing their memories, that sort of combines their brain into one powerful entity that can power the Jaeger. And the results of some of this mental link is that they're able to like move in unison and by they're kind of like hooked to like almost like a virtual reality rig. If they're inside the, the mech and they like throw a punch physically, then the, the Jaeger throws that same punch. Now, let's say if if Raleigh had a thought like, oh, my, I want some pizza. Would Yancey also have that thought? 
I think the conceit of the movie is that they're so in tune that they would have the thought at the same time. You know, it's not like if I'm thinking it, then it would get to you. It's that we're thinking it at the same time, and that's what makes it so powerful. See, this idea is almost more interesting than the movie. <laughs> and so the fact that they don't, they kind of gloss over like kind of how it works, and maybe they don't, maybe I'm just not grasping it, uh, was was a little kind of like annoying for me because these are brothers. They've They've been in each other's head. They probably don't like shock each other anymore. But let's say... Um, who's someone I, I hate? Tucker Carlson. Hmm. If you were going to like be like, all right, Matt, we're going to mentally drift you or connect you with Tucker Carlson, I'd be like, oh, I fucking hate this guy. And they're like, all right, he can read your thoughts. I'm like, uh, uh, oh no. Because my first thought would be like, we're fucking each other. We're sucking your fucking. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I couldn't help but think that. My brain would be like, all right, don't think anything weird. And then my brain would go, oh, I'm going to think of the weirdest, grossest thing because I cannot help myself because I'm a brain. Yeah. I almost feel like there needs to be like drift counseling scenes. Uh, earlier on, like, all right, you're going to picture each other's dicks constantly, but don't worry about it. So Gypsy Danger, it, it's waiting out off the coast of like Anchorage, Alaska to go battle this kaiju. And the Project Giger Command Center, and the main point man, like their man in a chair, right, is Clifton Collins Jr. And what is his name? His name is like Tendo something? It's Tendo Choi. Yeah, he's going to be the ops. Ops Tendo. Tendo Choi. Great name. They're like, all right, well, there's a there's a boat out there, but we don't have time to save the boat. And then we cut to the, the boat, and the boat's like, oh, what's this going on the water? It's a big wave. Oh, no, it's a kaiju. You couldn't tell the boat. You can like radio in and be like, hey, boat, there's a kaiju or whatever. The boat has a fucking radio, I guarantee you. And this David is exactly one of these things I'm talking about where it's like, would they really do it that way when they tell the boat? I just I'm trying to ignore those kind of thoughts, but they just keep popping up. It's you know, we have the technology to build Jaegers, but we don't have the technology to innovate the fishing industry, because if I'm told that there are interdimensional creatures coming up from under the ocean. I'm done working on the ocean. I'm finding a new way to do whatever it was that I was doing over there. Yeah, unless there's like, I don't know, I promise to be like, oh, when a kaiju breaches, we'll tell you. So you can you can get out of there. But uh, they sure didn't. But Gypsy Danger, it seems like they make short work of this kaiju. Like they, they beat it up pretty good. And these, these Beckett boys are pretty cocky and they're on their way back home. They think they've won the day. That kaiju ends up not being dead. And it tears through the hull and it takes Yancey. Yancey's got a moment where they're panicking. He's like, Raleigh, listen to me. And then he gets chomped up, gets yanked away. I thought that was pretty great. That's the kind of movie this is. It's going to be sort of silly, but in a in a serious moment, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was okay. And Raleigh, one person's not supposed to be able to pilot a Jaeger on their own. But even though his, his brother got uh, murdered right in front of him, and David, he got, Yancey got killed when he was still mentally linked with Raleigh. So Raleigh experienced the horror of Yancey's death both from his perspective and also from Yancey's. That's got to suck. And so even though he's one person controlling a Jaeger, Raleigh's able to beat Knifehead, kill him, and pilot his Jaeger back to shore. How do we know? Because we cut to shore, I guess, some Alaskan beach where a dad is playing with his son with a metal detector. And all of a sudden they're like, what's that noise? And out of this very thick fog comes these giant pair of robot legs. And it's a really cool scene because the Jaeger crashes and Raleigh comes tumbling out of it. But I got to say, Guillermo del Toro, right away, he's locked in on the visuals. He understands how to show the scale of the Jaegers. He understands how to show the scale of the kaijus in really, like, interesting ways. Like, one of the earliest shots we get, I think, is the first kaiju in the alternate history montage we see at a wrecking shop on the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's, like, a, it's a cool visual. So, I mean, this movie, it, it knows what it's doing in terms of providing us some awe factor, A-W-E. I don't know why I said it's all weird <laughs> when we're seeing these uh, monsters fight these robots. You know, we talked about it with The Woman King where there was a lack of what we would call splash page moments where mm. it's just, it's it's the stuff that's burned into your brain. 
I'll tell you, I have more than one markout moment throughout the course of this movie, and a lot of those are going to be tied to GDT's ability to get the most out of a moment visually. He's able to capture the grandness of a Jaeger fighting a kaiju or the grandness of a Jaeger standing next to human beings. He's really great at these visual moments. So we jump ahead to the present day where the Jaeger program has only eight more months of funding. Our stupid human leaders decide it would be better to build big walls to keep Kaiju out of major cities. Still reeling from experiencing his brother's death while they were mind-linked, Raleigh is now working construction on the Alaskan defense wall. Stacker arrives and offers Raleigh one more mission, destroy the Kaiju portal once and for all. Raleigh is not interested, but then he remembers we have almost two more hours left of a movie to fill, so damn it, Marshall, Stacker, he's in. So we start this this chunk, the Jaeger program, so Stacker Pentecost and, and the rest of the gang, they're having a, a tele-meeting with the, the government who's like, we're shutting this thing down, it's ineffective, we're building a wall instead. These poor guys have to have this tele-meeting in their abandoned office. Like behind them, the computers are covered, the machinery is shut down, nobody's working there, but they still have to come in here just to meet and talk about they only have eight more months of funding. That's humiliating. By the way, every world leader, David, is staring right into the camera uh, they all have the same lighting, and they all have a plain gray background. Is this really how they would do this? You know what I mean? I, I don't think it is. But you're right. I mean, this could have been an email. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but we go from there to we catch up with Raleigh. He's working construction now. He's drifting from job to job, kind of following the wall, working it. And we get to a scene where it, it's like hard target, and Chance is waiting for an assignment to come in. And the foreman of this construction job is like, all right, I got bad news and good news. Bad news, I had three guys at the top of the wall yesterday and they all died. Good news, I got three openings top of the wall. This is depressing, but it's also very, very funny. Yeah, David, I mean, uh, Raleigh, the voiceover earlier in the movie said that the Jaeger pilots are like rock stars. And now this dude is a lowly construction worker. Construction workers, if you're listening to this podcast, you know you are scum. No, that's not <laughs> true of the movie. That's what it says, not us. So Raleigh's working construction and then this helicopter shows up. It's very cool. Here comes Stacker Pentecost and he's ready to recruit Raleigh. And Raleigh says in in probably the worst display of his accent, he goes, it's been five years and four months or something like that. I might be doing Looney Bin Jim, but it's somewhere around there. <laughs> Mac, did this feel like it's, did you feel a passage of time? Did this feel like, boy, it's been five years. I had to track you down. No, I mean, at least grow a giant, a big bushy beard in order to show me that uh, time has passed. David, let's talk about Idris Elba. David, Idris Elba's name is frequently tossed around as a successor to Daniel Craig for James Bond. And I believe that is for two reasons. One, he is British. And two, name someone cooler than Idris Elba. You cannot. And the fact that in his spare time, he's also a DJ. Get the fuck out of here. Why does Idris Elba look like a goddamn nerd in this movie? It was seriously bothering me. Like most of the time I look at Idris Elba and I was like, that is a, a damn handsome, really cool man. I don't know if it's because he's got like a too tight military haircut or the fact that his mustache it's, it's like a half Hulk Hogan kind of thing where it starts to go, what do you call it, like a handlebar mustache? It's like a partial handlebar. Something about it. The worst Idris Elba has ever looked. I mean, he's still, you know, like a 9.8, right? But it just, when I saw Idris Elba, I'm like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going over the top for my man here. See, I had a different reaction once you get to him in the Jaeger costume. But I think up until then, maybe the movie kind of wants that. Maybe the movie wants him, you know, in buttoned down. He's in this uniform now. He's very professional. And then you see him in the Jaeger costume. It's like, oh, let's get on the ground and tussle. Yeah. Chris Bloosh is the sound uh, my genitals made. David, after I watched this movie, I, I wanted to look up something on the Wikipedia. And I got to say, the Wikipedia page for Pacific Rim, pretty thick, pretty dense with info. It's pretty good. Robust. 
Yeah. And one of the, that's the word that I was trying to come up with. Instead, I said nine other wrong words. One of the things that Guillermo del Toro said is he's like, look, I was not trying to make this some kind of like military recruitment movie. You know, I was not trying to fetishize the military here. And so one of the things he did was he gave these characters Western ranks. So instead of being like Colonel Pentecost, Stacker is a marshal and the Jaeger pilots are Rangers. And I thought that was kind of a neat little thing. And that's the other thing too. This movie does a really good job of like building this world. Like, I think this is a really neat world they're building. And so when there's little elements that make you question authenticity, they kind of take me out of it a little bit. Yeah, you're holding it to the standard of the rest of the movie. Like, the movie has shown it's capable of of being thorough and informative and entertaining, but it doesn't hold that consistently throughout the movie. Yeah, and I'm not trying to be like a potty poopa. I'm not someone like watching a Superman movie being like, how can Superman fly? Like, I'm not, no, he flies, it's fine. Like, I'm, I'm on board. So when I have to be like, is that how they would do that again and again and again? And I will stop fucking mentioning it right here, I promise. But yeah, it's a it's an ongoing thing with this film. Well, Stacker's going to boil down the essence of the movie for me here, where Raleigh doesn't want to do this mission. He's had it with Jaegers. He, you know, he watched his brother die. Stacker Pentecost, which, by the way, one of my favorite names ever, like ever since the movie came out, I'll still have the name Stacker Pentecost in my head. Mm hmm. But he basically says, look, the world's coming to an end. Would you rather die here or would you rather die in a Jaeger? That's going to be my first markout moment. Idris Elba sells that line so well that it was like a recruitment for me. Like, I wanted to jump in a Jaeger at that moment. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I hope I don't watch this movie when I'm near death. Because it'll be like, Mac, do you want to die in this hospital bed? Or do you want to uh, steal a bus and see what happens? Uh, I might steal that fucking bus. But Raleigh and Stacker arrive at the Hong Kong Jaeger base, codenamed the Shatterdome. Cool name. Bet your ass it is. We're introduced to the rest of our team. Stacker's overprotected prize pupil, Mako, played by Rinko Kikuchi. Kaiju expert, Newton, Newt Geisler, played by It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia's Charlie Day. And dimensional portal expert, Dr. Gottlieb, played by Byrne, I've seen him in something before, Gorman. We meet some other Jaeger crew, including Australian pilots, Herc Hansen, and his asshole son, Chuck. Finally, Stacker also reveals his plan to destroy the kaiju. Nuke the goddamn bastards. I was watching that movie, uh, The Watcher, with uh, Micah Monroe. That guy, uh, Bern Gorman, was in that thing, too. We get to the Hong Kong base. These visuals are very crisp, you know, because it's all, well, I don't know if it's all, but, you know, the CGI is going to be a showcase. The set design is going to be a showcase. This is going to be a dazzling reveal to this base. It made me want to upgrade my TV. It was that sharp. Like, it was very crisp. Yeah, agreed. Uh, this place looks great. I mean, it seems like a little too worn down for what it is. Like, uh, it's like, oh, is the Shatterdome a, a World War II aircraft carrier? It just, you guys got to clean in there. But David, you're right. The names being thrown around here are, are pretty cool. In fact, what's shocking is the character Herc Hansen is played by actor Max Martini. And David, you're not allowed to have a cooler name than your character. You know what I mean? Well, we're going to have him and Burn Gorman in the same movie. Like, Burn Gorman's a pretty great name. Yeah, David, I used to watch that show, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Don't ask, don't ask me why. I don't know. Uh, please don't pile on. And it, there's a character on that show named Lance Hunter. But you know who played Lance Hunter, David? I don't. An actor named Nick Blood. No, <laughs> you cannot have a cooler name. His, his character should have just been Nick Blood. It's the it's the Captain and Tennille syndrome where uh, the captain's real name is Daryl Dragon. And it's like, why did you go with Captain and Tennille? Holy shit, I did not know that. Yeah. But yeah, give it up for GDT and then uh, Travis Beecham or whatever because there's no let up in terms of giving things cool names. Like you got the Shatter Dome here. You got Herc Hansen, Stacker Pentecost, like George Lucas, or especially uh, Frank Herbert, the Dune guy. They gave up after a while. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, they're like, oh, we'll call you the uh, Muad'Dib and this is... Uh, the planet Arrakis, and then that guy's name is Paul. 
And then this other character's name is Duncan Idaho. I don't know what I'm fucking doing here. And then, yeah, like, you know, Star Wars, it's like, oh, we have uh, Luke. Okay, but Skywalker, right? It's like, ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Boba Fett, Job of the Hood. It's a walrus man or whatever. He just, <laughs> at some point, stopped giving a fuck. But no, cool names throughout, including Shattered Dome. David, Charlie Day in this movie. Who I like Charlie Day. I like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I think at times he bit off a little bit more than he could chew acting-wise. For some reason, I feel like Charlie Day now could do a better job with this. And, and maybe the script doesn't do him any favors, but I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on uh, and Chucky e. D in this movie? That makes sense. I, I like to think that he could do a better, or he would do a better job today if this movie came out. I like him. I like Charlie Day. I was very glad to see him get a Hollywood paycheck, but there is a sobriety to this role that does not suit Charlie Day. I kind of want, like, I want Manic for no reason, I guess is what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, He's the scientist, but he's kind of offbeat. It should be someone else. I'm very happy for him, but it doesn't always work for me. Yeah, his character's a little too cool, which is funny because he's like a nerdy scientist. And I do mean nerd because he's got like, he's such a kaiju kind of fan. He's got like tattoos of the monsters that have killed hundreds of thousands of people. He's got them like tattooed on his arm. And in fact, he calls one. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy's uh, 6,000 tons of awesome or something. Uh, Raleigh, Charlie Hunnam's character is like, yeah, more like uh, awful, right? He murdered all those people. Charlie Day is like, yeah, 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 that's what I meant. So, David, the Australian pilots of their Jaeger, I believe their name is, what's the name of their Jaeger? Do you remember? Striker Eureka. Okay. They, his name is Herc Hansen, and he's piloting it with his son. And and he said he's like, he's now piloting with his son. So maybe he was piloting it with his brother at some point. Maybe it was, I don't know. But his son, Chuck Hansen, which <laughs> maybe they did run out of cool names. Chuck Hansen's a fucking asshole. When Chuck meets Raleigh, they have a really like dumb conversation where Chuck decides to go big dick on him. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, what have you, what have you been doing? Because I've been kicking ass in Jaegers. Uh, what are you up to, mate? And he's like, I've been working construction. And he's like, oh, cool, 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 cool. You're going to get us fucking killed. If you get in my way, I'm going to drop you like a big bag of kaiju shit. Good day. Let's go watch Bluey or whatever. Yeah, I think he, he says, like, you know, probably the best burn he has in the movie is like, oh, you're in construction. What are you going to do, build our way out of trouble or something to that effect? But for the most part, Chuck is, he is the shittiest NPC you've ever seen in a game. Like, he really is just there to antagonize whether there's a logic behind it or not. Like, you know, this movie suffers a lot from like the thousand day syndrome where, you know, we're on day 1000 of of the world, but it drops us in like we're in day one. Mm -hmm. And and in day one of this whole Jaeger versus Kaiju, you would probably get a lot of hotheads. But if we've been doing this for years and the world is at stake, you would think egos would be left at the door. Yeah. Plus Raleigh was like the Michael Jordan of Jaeger pilots for a while. So he'd also probably know that he was like off doing something else. And then now he came back. Yeah, I don't see him being this pissed off about the return of like a seasoned vet. Although there is like a little piece of dialogue. Chuck Hansen earlier in the movie is being interviewed by a reporter. He's kind of pissed off that the Jaeger program is going to be shut down. And he blames previous Jaeger pilots because mm-hmm. he's so cocky. He's like, if, if you know more Jaeger pilots were like me, we'd be winning this war right now. I don't know. I'm still not buying this writing. It still seems a little forced. Yeah. But David, it's time to find Raleigh a new partner. Raleigh tests his fight compatibility with a bunch of suitors by fighting them. Then Raleigh finds his one true match. It's Mako the whole time. But Stacker will not let Mako partner with Raleigh because he said so. But then has a change of heart and lets Mako audition in the Gypsy Danger with Raleigh. Things do not go well. Also, Geisler drifts with a kaiju brain and learns more about the kaiju's plans for domination. So, David, there's a scene here where Stacker Pentecost is meeting with his research team. You know how in movies sometimes it's like their, their technology is like a little too good? You know, like the Avengers is like, here, let me bring you this, like, uh, I'll show you how we're going to attack this base using this, like, crazy virtual reality program. 
when we first talking to uh, Gottlieb, his calculations are on like a, a two-story chalkboard in written handwriting. And it's like, okay, well, this is the opposite. This is like way too <laughs> shitty to be a fucking thing. Gottlieb is telling him, you know, Stacker, he's like, look, my calculations are correct. Uh, we're soon going to get kaiju attacks where they attack in pairs. But Geiser wants to talk about something. And Stacker Pentecost is like, hey, shut the fuck up. He's like, I don't want to listen to you right now. Isn't he your scientist? Shouldn't you listen to him? And then when Geisler talks about his plan to drift with the kaiju brain, Gottlieb is like, you're crazy. And then Geisler says, fortune favors the brave. The brave, David? The movie Alexander didn't release five different cuts on home video so he could forget the phrase, fortune favors the bold, okay? Yeah. The fucking bold. God damn it. Hope somewhere Colin Farrell's rolling over in his donkey-shaped grave. Do you suppose they uh, they did that for like copyright reasons, or they you know, or do you think they just did not know it at all? It's it's always been bold. Yeah, because I think um, Guinness that was like their slogan for a while. That's right. Yeah, fortune favors the bold. So drink a milkshake, thick beer. But David, so this research team is like uh, two scientists, and are there other scientists helping them out? Do they have like a support crew. Of course they don't. But uh, Geisler and Godlieb like do not like each other. And they are like, they're set up, they're set up as kind of rivals. One is researching more of the breach dimensional portal aspect. The other one is more obsessed with the kaiju themselves. The problem here, David, is, you know, these two should play off each other, kind of like oil and water, but they're both such over the top cartoons that they kind of feel like the same person anyway. Like they might as well have been like twins. Yeah. They're the Jay and Silent Bob of this movie. <laughs> but Mako, she wants to audition. She wants to try to be a Jaeger pilot, but Marshall keeps like shutting her down. And he's like, you know, I have my reasons. And he's not really telling us. But David, I know the reasons. Mako's too thirsty, David. She is hungry for uh, uh, Raleigh's uh, hot bod, right? She wants to mix it up real bad with him. Yeah, it, it's very apparent. Even in this movie that doesn't quite capitalize on the sexual tension. Man, she is telegraphing every move and she wants in. At some point she says goodbye to him and he changes, but she doesn't like leave the room and she. She stares at Raleigh as he, as he gets shirtless. And then after she like, you know, blushes and retreats back to her room, she's peeping on him through a peephole. That goes a peeper, David. She likes to watch. And this is a PG-13 movie. It's all going to waste. I know. Hey, real quick. We haven't done this in a while, but a wuss warning. In case there's any wusses out there, you are fine. There is a dog in this movie. It's a bulldog named Max and it lives. It's never in any danger. And even better than that, it's a cute little meatball. So uh, enjoy every, every scene with it. So we get into this little training sequence where they're pitting Raleigh against, you know, prospective suitors. You know, he he's doing like stick fighting with them to see which one he's most compatible with. And he's laying waste to everyone. And Mako is not happy about this. She's watching and she's disapproving. And Raleigh thinks, hey, why are you disapproving of them? You know, you pick them. They're supposed to be my partners. And she's like, I'm not disapproving of them. I'm disapproving of you. So like the movie's doing a really good job of letting us know Okay, maybe Mako is better than, you know, maybe she's better than just being a person who holds a clipboard. Maybe there is something more to her. Let's see. Let's watch this movie develop Mako. The characters in this movie are very easily goaded because she's like, I'm disappointed in you. And then Raleigh's like, oh, yeah, well, hey, how about we give her a shot? Which is a little weird because, as I understand it, this audition is basically fighting. So it's kind of like, oh, you insult me? I'm going to fuck. Let's fight, which it seems a little aggro. And then Marshall... Uh, Stacker Pentecost is like, no, that, we're not going to do that. And then Raleigh's like, oh, you, you think she's not good enough? You didn't train her well enough? And then Pentecost is like, all right, you guys are fighting. You go to me and do that so fast. <laughs> and so they're about to fight David. And Raleigh says, now remember, it's a dialogue, not a fight. What? I kind of don't get how this audition works because the idea is fighting someone you're supposed to be able to see if you're drift compatible. Like you have the same 
brain wavelength, but you're not fighting with the other person in this exercise. You're fighting against them. This whole exercise is kind of a mess in that way because there's a they even employ a point system where it's like, all right, the first to four wins. So in my mind, you're absolutely right. This is supposed to be a dialogue. I'm thinking they never hit each other once. I'm thinking this thing goes on for several minutes of near misses and they're so good at communicating that they never would hit each other. But immediately it's like, you know, they'll catch each other with cheap shots. It's like, oh, one to nothing. Oh, you weren't looking one to one, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, this is not working the way I think the movie wants it to work. Yeah. And David, I like to watch first research later. And I was reading the Wikipedia and it said, and this is a cited quote, Del Toro em emphasized the character's emotional intimacy by filming their training fight scene the way he would a sex scene. So I had to go back and rewatch this scene to see like if I got any sort of vibe off of that. And David, I did not. Not at all, because even like, you know, there are certain movies that would make this a seductive scene. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, Rinko Kikuchi is actually, you know, pretty exceptional in this sequence. You know, she she displays a lot of physical ability. She displays a lot of uh, combat prowess. And she, you know, she gets her stick out. And she does a little twirl. She does a little, you know, acrobatic move. And then you cut to Raleigh and his move with the stick is like, Wrapping paper tube. It's like I'm a I'm a Star Wars kid, and I'm just whoop 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 whoop. There's not the dance of seduction that I would want out of these two characters. Yeah, Raleigh's moves just seem to be to get him to flex. Which man, if you're gonna film this like a sex scene, uh, pop that shirt off, Raleigh. You know what I mean? It'd be like it's a little warm in here. <laughs> Hold on, let me actually try to do a Charlie Hunnam voice. It's a little warm in here. How about it's... we give her a shot? That's not great, but that's what I'm going for. But then after their fight, like uh, Stacker's like, all right, all right, I've seen enough. Raleigh's like, he's like, oh, yeah, I've seen enough, too. She's going to be my partner. And Stacker's like, no, absolutely not. And Raleigh's like, why? And he's like, I have my reasons that I don't want to say. And it's like, okay, fine. But when Raleigh and Mako are walking away, Raleigh's like, you felt it, right? I know we're drift compatible. So, David, I guess part of being drift compatible is just vibing with someone. I assume so and sort of convince. You know, that's the other thing, too. I wish she had shared his enthusiasm in that moment. Like I know she's conflicted and I know the movie wants her to sort of, to know that she can't have that, to know that she can't be a Jaeger pilot. But I would have liked to have seen like, I did feel that. Oh my God, this is, we have something here. We also see in a, in a moment by himself, Stacker is starting to have nosebleeds. Oh, interesting. I think it maybe is time of the Pacific Rim. He's doing a little bit of that uh, cocaine they got out there. No, I immediately thought this is Izoki making plans. Please don't, you know, <laughs> make plans to stop your nosebleeds. So, David, it's time for a neural test for the gypsy danger. So Raleigh's put on his little action suit and he's going to go ahead and uh, they're going to start up, turn the keys on gypsy danger, and he's going to meet his new partner. And they're going to see if they can, you know, link minds and operate it. But David looks like Stacker has flip-flopped again because Mako is back in. And now they're going to do the neural test. So, David, let's listen to a little bit of audio here. This is when Raleigh is expecting his new partner, who he doesn't know, and that partner ends up being Mako. Are you going to say anything? No point. Five minutes, you're going to be inside my head. You look good. David, I don't know if I'm giving this movie more credit than it deserves, but I, I honestly am like, there's some chemistry here between these two. I could not agree less. No, I wanted <laughs> I wanted some chemistry between them. Like, there's no, there's no back and forth here. There's no communicating their intentions to each other. It's like, it almost feels like he's saying that because he has to. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, no, I, I don't agree. You know what? You're, like, it might just be the fact that like two attractive people are in the frame together and I'm like, yeah, hook them up. But Geyser David, he manages to like link up to an old piece of kaiju brain and like drift with it, right? 
And he learns just from like, you know, being mentally linked for like a, a minute that the kaiju monsters that are coming through the breach, they're actually like not an alien species. They are genetically engineered war monsters. The reason why their DNA is similar, even though the kaiju look a lot different, is because they're clones of each other with different features. And the plot here is basically the plot of Independence Day, where the aliens are like, oh, they, they want to take over the Earth and, and live here and harvest its natural resources. And they kind of like shove in a little eco message where they're like, they actually tried in the past stacker. The dinosaurs, remember them? Those were kaiju monsters, which, by the way, movie, shit the fuck up. But the reason it didn't work back then is because our planet, the environment was too great. But now the humans have poisoned it. The kaiju love, like we almost like we prepared the planet for their for them to come take it over. I don't know. I mean, look, I love a good eco message, David, but this thing, plank, it did not. Uh, this is a brick and not a swish. I love a good eco message, but make the movie an eco message. Don't fit it in as a throwaway detail 45 minutes into the movie. In my mind, I saw people getting upset in the theater like, oh, so this is my fault now. Like, that would be great. So this is Geisler's subplot, right? Like throughout the movie, it's like his mission to find out what's really going on with these with these kaiju because we're going to find the secret to beating. Yeah, so Geisler's going to head to Hong Kong's kaiju black market, the Bone Slums. Another cool name. To acquire a fresh kaiju brain from kaiju corpse scavenger Hannibal Chow, played by a GDT regular, the always great Ron Perlman. Meanwhile, emotions run high as Chuck doesn't want some has been in some g-g-g-girl messing up his spotlight moment. Raleigh defends Mako's honor for some inexplicable reason. Stacker scrubs Mako from the mission again. Raleigh and Mako have a tender moment where they share their feelings about watching family members get destroyed in front of them. So Ron Perlman here plays Hannibal Chow, very flamboyant scavenger and merchant of body parts like the remains of Kaiju. And here's how Hannibal Chow says he came about his name. Ah! Oh, that's great! That's real great. So I take it you're, you're Hannibal Chow, right? I like the name. I took it from uh, my favorite historical character and my second favorite Sichuan restaurant in Brooklyn. Now tell me what you want before I gut you like a pig and feed you to the skin louse. Okay, David, so following that formula where your first name is the name of your favorite historical character and your last name is from your second favorite, we'll say Chinese restaurant, David, what is your black market kaiju dealer Pacific Rim name? Wow, that's awesome. Uh, okay, historical... Chinese. That's going to be Lyndon Mission. That's going to be after <laughs> Lyndon Johnson and Mission Chinese in San Francisco. Uh, do you have a black market name, Mac? Of course I do, David. It's a simple formula. Anyone could follow it. So my favorite historical character, David, is, of course, Komaram Beam from the movie RRR. Uh, so my name would be Komaram Panda Express. So Chuck here, Chuck Hansen, he's, again, just being a real fucking pissy idiot. And he says at some point, he's mad because he's like, D you guys are going to screw this up. He's like, I want to come back from this mission, which is funny because, spoiler alert, he doesn't at the end. So honestly, Chuck kind of has a point. But this fight with Chuck is dumb. And the reason why it's a dumb fight. Now, look, I, I think Raleigh was right in punching him because he's like, look, you need to keep you a bitch on a leash. And like, dude, if you call one of my female friends a bitch, I'm going to come after you. Now, you will beat me to a pulp, uh, you being anyone. And midway through the fight, he's like, you need to apologize to her. Apologize. Like, all you got to do to end the fight is apologize for calling someone a bitch so it's just i don't know i almost want to like him to lean heavier in how dumb this fight is just be like i'll never say i'm sorry <laughs> just like because if that's what the fight is just fucking apologize stupid you're a bitch too yeah you know uh, like chuck sucks he sucks just to suck you know it becomes apparent the more we see him every scene we see him in he's there just to be a dick like and and the this fight doesn't work for me for a number of reasons. One, I just don't, you know, I want to see Chuck get pulverized, but also it's like, so Raleigh feels compelled to defend the honor of someone who is 
as equally good at fighting as he is, like, you know, Mako can very easily defend her own honor. It's the the whole this part feels really, really clunky. It is clunky. I mean, Chuck has been riding Raleigh's ass for most of their time together. So it's not necessarily like I'm a neutral level, you know, going from neutral to fight emotion because you insulted Mako. He already was like halfway there because he was mad at Chuck. But you're right. Mako totally could have kicked this guy's ass by herself. It'd be different if Chuck was like correct in saying like he's the fucking new stud, right? He's the new alpha. But that's the thing. He's not like Hangman from Top Gun Maverick. Like he's not that great. He's not that like immense talent enough to be like shitting all over Raleigh. Good movies have that payoff of, all right, you and me, let's have it out. And this feels like if this is your opportunity to do that, it's a real waste of an opportunity. I mean, they say that the striker Eureka, Eureka striker or whatever, it has just taken down like seven kaiju kills in a row. I was like, all right, seven. I mean, I feel like that's a number that Gypsy Danger probably did back in the day. Maybe if it was like, they took down 42 or something like that. I don't know. They just did not build this guy up enough. But Stacker, after he scrubs his scrubs Macro from the mission, he still is kind of like, you know, a little coy about it. And Raleigh's like, no, nah, man, I know what's up because we, uh, I drifted with her and I know that we're going to have a flashback now. And we see Mako is a little girl and she's caught in the uh, collateral damage of a kaiju attack. And the heroic Jaeger pilot that saved her was Stacker Pentecost. So I guess the idea is like, basically, this is his adoptive daughter. I don't understand why this was like some big fucking secret we needed to dance around. I kind of got that vibe from the get go. Like, I know your secret. She means something to you. And I'm like, was that supposed to be a secret? Because we got that. But also, like, by actually presenting this in the movie, it leads to a weird dynamic between Mako and Stacker. And by that, I mean, like, you know, we see the flashback. Mako's family gets destroyed. She's a young child. And then all of a sudden, this Jaeger comes and saves the day. And and who should step out of that Jaeger? But Stacker Pentecost, who then goes on to adopt her. Mac, imagine you're saved by Batman. And then Batman goes on to adopt you. Do you think when you get older, you're going to like rebel against Batman? Or do you think you're going to do whatever Batman says? David, you just described Robin. Yeah, so it depends. If you're uh, Tim Drake, you're, you're, you're going to go along with whatever Batman says. But if you're Dick Grayson, yeah, you're going to rebel a little. And then if you're Jason Todd, you're going to rebel a lot. And if you're Damian Wayne, look out. You're rebelling from the get-go. So in this exchange between Stacker and Raleigh, Stacker's like, you fucking never touch me again. I'm sick of your insubordination. Hey, one more word out of you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you back to the wall where I found you crawling on or whatever. Uh, bitch, Raleigh's doing you a favor. Like, did you misremember that? He didn't fly to you begging for a job. You flew to him. Like, if he's like, fine, I'll go back to the wall, then <laughs> Stacker will be like, oh, hold on. Fuck, I fucked up. Please, 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 please. It's kind of like those things that get shared on the internet, like the fuck you, I quit Twitter account or something where someone's like, I'm going to need you to come in on your off day. It's like, no, nah, man, it's my off day. It's like, well, I need you to be a team player. It's like, fine, I quit. And he's like, hey, hold on now. Hold on. I think I would have appreciated this movie a little better if Raleigh carried that sort of attitude throughout the movie of like, hey, man, you called me, you know, like yeah. I'm here because you want me here. But we don't we don't get that. You're right, because he kind of has that attitude when we first meet him. And then as soon as he arrives at Shatterdome, it's like, uh, yes, sir, I'll do whatever I can. So, you know, I wonder if a sharper movie or a movie that wanted to play up the romance angle a little bit better, if Mako immediately becomes the reason that he wants to stay there, if it's kind of a love at first sight thing. And he's like, oh, well, you know, now I see something worth fighting for. But David, that reminds me of, of, of something I talked about earlier, the drift, right? So he neurally links with Mako. That's, it seems to me that's like as intimate as you could ever get with someone is like sharing a mind with them. I feel like they should come out of that instead of just being like, hey, friend, 
just like that should be almost like a scene where they're like they need a cigarette afterwards. Yeah, uh, you you hit the nail on the head. As, you know, you hit it earlier. We almost need some counseling. You know, we need some a mediator afterwards to be like, okay, I know you saw some stuff. That's going to be her private stuff. You know, you saw some stuff too, and like have someone talk them through that, or have a scene where they're off doing stuff later in the in the day, and they're still sort of linked together. Where you know he's seeing her thoughts or he's seeing you know her point of view. You know, something to indicate that, hey, that drift worked and they are bonded together. So, David, the Shadow Dome is full of extras, right? There's so many people in the Shadow Dome. They're kind of like the, you know, the support crew, the pit staff, the technical, whatever, that makes this Jaeger program work. Now, there are a lot of key moments where you'd expect some, some of these extras to be around and they're not, but whatever. But here's the thing I love about the Shadow Dome crew is that they know they are not the main character. Because anytime one of the main characters, like, walks in the room, they all shut up and, like, listen. <laughs> <laughs> Like they know that they're the stormtroopers, and like, oh, hey, Darth Vader's here. We let's let's finish this conversation another time because this this guy's the main character. We need to hear what he says because this we'll live or die based on what. Not your fucking story about that basketball game, Greg. All right, shut the fuck up. I want to hear what what's going on with these two. Are they gonna bang? I don't know. But there's another scene where Raleigh like enters the lunchroom and everyone like shuts up and stares at Raleigh and Mako, and they're like, well, what are these two doing? They have a little moment here where it completely avoided chemistry. So maybe you're right. But they're just not not clicking. Well, you know, they they try. You know, God bless this movie. They're trying. When they go to the the mess hall and and they get the eyes at them, they go and they go off and eat in kind of like the factory area, and they just you know watch the gypsy danger get fixed. And they have uh, a tender moment where they talk about how Raleigh was still connected to Yancey when he died, so he saw all of his fear and hopelessness, and and that's a, that's a real yikes moment. I I never want to feel anything remotely like that. So we have kaiju sign. There's movement in the breach, and it looks like a Category 4 kaiju. That's a big one, I think. Time to send Herc and Chuck out in the Striker Eureka, along with disposable Jaeger Pals Crimson Typhoon from China and Cherno Alpha from Russia to fight two kaiju. It's an action set piece we'll call Round 2 Part 1. Leatherback. And Otachi. Versus Jaegers. Fight. Leatherback releases an EMP from its belly, rendering every digital Jaeger useless. Good thing that Gypsy Danger is nuclear and therefore analog, I guess. What? <laughs> I don't know. But David, there's a fun scene here between Ron Perlman and Charlie Day where they're talking to each other. And I don't know if it's, I think it's just I love Ron Perlman so much. And then Charlie Day here. I mean, you can just listen to this dialogue. What the hell do you want a secondary brand for anyway? I mean, every part of the kaiju sells. Cartilage, spleen, liver, even the crap. One cubic meter of crap has enough phosphorus in it. To fertilize the whole field! But the brain, too much ammonia. So what's the deal, little fella? Well, that's classified. So I couldn't tell you, even if I wanted to. But it is pretty cool. So I might tell you. I'm gonna tell you. I figured out how to drift to the kaiju. Are you funning me, son? I mean, it's fast. That I do not mind. That That's fun. Not only do I not mind it, that I love it. That's the best use of Charlie Day as an actor. I'm not particularly fond of Ron Perlman in this in this role or in this movie, but I think the interaction here is probably some of the best that that he has. Yeah, no, I'm very into moments like this. I wish I had seen more of that with them. If you feel like Ron Perlman is forced into this movie, I, I, you're absolutely correct. It just seems like Guillermo del Toro is like, oh, I want to hang out with my boy Ron, listen to more of his sex stories. Uh, I'll write a character for him. Yeah, but you know, we get the you know a battle scene. We we get uh, so uh, the kaiju appearing. So this is going to be the Jaegers versus Otachi, and then 
you see a second kaiju jump up. This is going to be the appearance of Leatherback. It kind of comes out of nowhere. It's, you know, one of the Jaegers is rushing to the aid of the other, but then I don't know where this second one comes up. This is going to be a mark out moment for me. This is going to be another one of those splash page moments that I talked about, like the visual of Leatherback jumping out of the water and hopping onto the Jaeger. It was so stinking cool. It should have been painted on the side of a van. So I, I marked out at it. Yeah, it is a cool moment. And the other uh, crews here, the Cherno Alpha and Crimson Typhoon, I mean, they're disposed of pretty quickly. They're kind of like Street Fighter characters. Like the Crimson Typhoon are actually triplets. And so their uh, Jaeger has like three arms and Cherno Alpha are like brother and sister. Gross. And but yeah, they're they're disposed of pretty quick. But yeah, man, when that that leatherback pops out of the water like that, that was fucking cool. But David, let's talk about their names again, because Leatherback, okay, maybe he's got like a big leathery back, but I guarantee you they didn't see him because he's underneath the water. And then Otachi, I just looked it up, it says, is a noun and a polite term for calling, departing, and staying where one is. Okay. I don't, I mean, I think they're just almost drawing names out of a hat at this point. You didn't get the sense that Otachi was calling or staying where one is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We, we get a shot inside one of the Jaegers, by the way. And it was, I don't know how far we are into the movie, but the entire time we see inside the Jaegers, there's like sparks coming like inside the cockpit. And finally I was like, why are there sparks inside that fucking thing? Are we in a Terminator factory? The inside of the Jaeger is not OSHA compliant at all because you see them when they first get into the rig, there's a little platform that gets them to the rig and then the platform pulls away. And then they're just standing above like an open fan throughout the entire movie. Like that is not safe at all, my dudes. Yeah, and you're not, uh, wrong about that because we find out that uh, Stacker's nosebleeds is, is related to the poor insulation in, in Jaegers. That's right. But, you know, overall, this uh, this sequence is very cool. I like it. When the Cherno Alpha, the Russian one, which, by the way, Cherno, like, okay. Again, naming after Chernobyl, a terrible disaster. Would you name your Jaeger after 911 <laughs> or something? But yeah, you know, so, so the Cherno Alpha, they get basically drowned and exploded and like you'll we'll do cutaways to the inside of the jaeger while the water is filling up and they're still strapped into their seats and they're you know sort of writhing uh in agony dang that's a hell of a way to die but also an awesome way to die i you know i drowned and exploded inside of a jaeger yeah and so leatherback i guess has got the power to fire off an electromagnetic pulse from its tum-tum and it basically shuts down all the jaegers and back in, you know, the Shadow Dome, they're like, oh, man, all the Jaegers are digital. And then Raleigh and Mako, they're, they're scrub right there on the sidelines. They're not in the Jaeger. He's like, well, I know one uh, Jaeger that's not. It's Gypsy Danger. It's analog. It's nuclear powered. Okay, is it analog? Because we saw inside that thing, there's electronics. It doesn't matter if it's like uh, gas powered, right? If it's got electronics, the EMP, I don't know, man. It just seems like this is another dumb thing that. I'm going to have to take the movie's word for it, but it just doesn't really make sense. We even had a, a moment earlier, you know, just a few scenes ago where they're doing the training where they're trying to see if they're drift compatible and Mako goes apeshit. So they physically pull the plug on it. Like it is not, it's not a crank. It's not, you know, some sort of steampunk driven Jaeger. It is, it's, you know, it's operated by power. All I know, David, is when is big tech going to learn nuclear power is the way to go. But this is exciting, you know, that Leatherback has this sort of oh shit moment. It's like, oh wow, they were able to release an EMP and shut everything down. And when Raleigh steps up and says, the gypsy danger can handle this, I'm like, let's wrap this fucker up. And I looked at my watch and we have another hour of movie left to go. Oh no. So the kaiju are attacking the city and then Hannibal Chow 
turns to Geisler and he's like, you, you said you drifted with the kaiju. They're probably after you. That's probably where they're attacking yours. They're coming to kill you because you know their secrets. And he's right. How did he fucking know that, though? Did he read the movie adaptation? He might be like a Biff-style time traveler. The whole chunk with Ron Perlman and Charlie Day holds so many secrets. Because at this point, they're kicking out uh, Geisler. They're like, you can't stay here. You're a threat. You need to go to the public shelters, you know, where all the riffraff go. And Geisler's like, well, what's going to happen to me? And at this point, Chow reveals his, you know, he's wearing these weird sunglasses. He takes them off and he has like an eye injury. Like someone like kind of shivved him with a, with a knife. What happened at the shelter? It doesn't make sense because when we see the shelter later, everyone is super well behaved except for the fucking dumb American <laughs> Geisler. So David, originally the strike force is supposed to be just Cherno Alpha and Crimson Typhoon and Striker Eureka with our hero Herc and our asshole Chuck. They're supposed to just hang back and they're like, we want to get in the fight. And Stacker is like, no, let those other Jaegers battle. Or you're, you have to stay back because you're protecting those millions of people that are in the city. So David, after Striker Eureka is hit with the EMP, it like shuts down. And the dad Herc is like, well, we can't just do nothing. And so they go outside with some flare guns and they shoot Leatherback in the eye with a flare gun. And all it does is piss off Leatherback. What the fuck was the plan there? Oh, there's no plan. I think they thought we're dying. Let's go out like rednecks and just shoot bottle rockets at the sun. You know, just it just felt like a really kind of stupid way and i mean that in a nice way a stupid way to wrap up your life yeah the water is not lava by the way you can just hop in it and swim home i guarantee i guarantee you there's a life raft in there you know what i mean there has to be there's pods in there we've seen them but it looks like leatherback is about to destroy the heroes of the strike eureka but oh no david a new fighter has entered hell yeah it's a trial by fire for the brand new jaeger crew of mako and raleigh it's an action set piece we'll call round two part two leatherback and otachi versus gypsy danger fight the gypsy danger makes entertaining work of leatherback meanwhile geisler survives an encounter with the weird tongue of kaiju otachi Gypsy Danger arrives. We discover Otachi can also spit acid and fly. But the Gypsy Danger prevails. Geisler demands Hannibal Chow harvest a kaiju brain for another drift. Hannibal agrees, and then a few movie minutes later, gets chomped by a baby kaiju. A very satisfying ending. R.I.P. Rest in power, King, <laughs> to Hannibal Chow. David, in, in this uh, fight, which I, I thought was a really cool fight, there's a scene where they smash a bunch of uh, shipping containers. And I was like, oh no, the supply chain is what I legitimately thought. <laughs> Which that's how much the fucking pandemic has fucked up my brain. But dude, there's a lot of cool, uh, I like this fight a whole lot with Gypsy Danger. There's a really cool shot where we get a kind of a low angle uh, shot of like leatherback, like roaring that I remember being uh, pretty badass. And Dave, I'm a sucker for like momentum moments, right? Like when you're on the ropes and then you turn to somebody and you're like, let's fucking do this. So like I think the music like drops out for a second. I don't really remember exactly. And then Raleigh says, like, let's do this. And then the music comes back up and it's like, oh hell yeah. It's like now they're in this fucking fight. I like it. And I also like this kaiju fight. It's so funny. Compare this, and I know you maybe haven't seen it in a while, but to your memory of the Transformer battles and the movie Transformers, directed by Michael Bay. And they're such a fucking mess. Whereas in this one, yeah, they're just like punching each other, but they kind of like mix it up. Like at some point he's like elbow rocket. And so in order to like deliver a devastating punch. The elbow of Gypsy Danger like turns into a rocket. And so basically that punch is like rocket fired at the kaiju's face. And uh, I thought it was like, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed this fight. I like a lot of this. I'll tell you what, man, I like the second half, you know, from the time I checked my watch on, 
This movie is, it's just riding the momentum. It, it's not really dealing with character development that much. It's just, it's wound up the car and it's letting it go. Uh, I'm really into a lot of this. Like you said, comparing this to Transformers where the detail was almost too meticulous and you sort of lost the movements of the robots. These Jaegers have very clear movements. They have very human movements, so it's relatable to the viewer. Like when the Jaeger gets knocked back and it kind of has to like stop itself and steady itself, it, it's, you know, stops itself like a, like a damn ninja. So it's cool. I'm really into this. Going back to your, you know, you talk about the, the shipyard and the supply chain. The Gypsy Danger grabs two shipping containers, one in each hand, and sort of eraser claps the sides of the kaiju's head. And I'm like, you know, you are made of metal. Like you really could have just clapped your hands <laughs> together. But I'm into it. I, I, I get what the movie's doing and I'm super into it. Yeah, me too. And so Gypsy Danger beats Leatherback because Gypsy Danger like shoots Leatherback with its pulse cannon or whatever. And at some point, Raleigh's like, empty the clip, which I, does it have a physical clip? I don't think it does. But it's like, thug, 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 just like blowing the fuck out of the kaiju. His blood glows, right? So it's like a glowing corpse. And Gypsy Danger starts to walk away. And then Raleigh turns to Mako, and he's, which should he even need to say this out loud if they're drifting? But I don't, well, who cares? I think it's dead. But let's check for a pulse. And so it turns around. And Gypsy Danger just boop, 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 shoots it like nine more times. And that, I know we're so far into the movie day, but it's my first markout moment. <laughs> because, and then afterwards, he's like, guess it didn't have a pulse or whatever, which I was like, you know what? More movies should do this. Where it's like, yeah, check for pulse. It's like, uh-huh, no pulse. Like, just, this is a, that's a fun action line. It's a good payoff for... Raleigh trying to get back into his groove or trying to get his groove back rather where, you know, you see the first two acts of this. He doesn't want to be in the Jaeger. He's struggling to get back into fighting shape and, and be compatible with his drift partner. So to see him get back to this level of cockiness. Yeah, it was fucking awesome. So then we cut over to Hong Kong, which is in the middle, you know, it's middle of its uh, evacuation. And we see Geisler running into a public shelter. And he's like yelling the whole time, like, I'm a doctor, let me in, I'm a doctor, which do, do people fucking speak English there? Shut the fuck up. They're inside the shelter and like, you know, boom, boom, it starts to vibrate with the footfalls of the kaiju. And Geisler's like, it's coming for me. And then sure enough, one of the people does speak English and she says, yeah, it's coming for all of us. And he goes, no, he wants me specifically. And then in Chinese, the person goes, hey, kaiju wants this little dude. And they all abandon him so quick. They all like basically like, form a circle and shove him in the middle americans are so embarrassing david everyone else is being like quiet and not really freaking out they're all kind of remaining calm but geisler who's a fucking kaiju expert is like just won't stop yelling and like he wants he's coming for me just calm down i mean yeah he's right but at the same time like just the the amount of panic coming out of uh, geisler it's also you know it's information that he volunteered you know i'd almost rather someone else around him figure it out and be like it's this guy let's get rid of him but no i mean all he has to do is shut his goddamn mouth and he can't even do that yeah but they take it they're like oh i think he's coming for him well, well which they believe him so fast but otachi does burst through the shelter and he's kind of probing for geisler and, and how the i say he i mean i uh, i don't think it's a i think it's a genderless kaiju so how they probe for geisler is it like the mouth opens up and this like really creepy like flower like tongue comes in and is like probing around we're gonna learn a little bit more about itachi uh later on that it's got actually you know itachi i'm gonna say it's probably a she because uh at least by human standards as we'll find out in a minute but we learned that itachi can do some interesting things with its bod but it, it's probing for geisler but it stops david because it it can feel the fact that gypsy danger has now entered this fight and when we see gypsy danger what is it doing? We see it dragging a boat to the fight behind it. 
like a giant, you know, shipping boat. And then when it gets to the fight, it like picks up the boat and now it's using it like a baseball bat or a sword. And David, I fucking loved this dragging the boat to the fight energy. It was my second markout moment. Because David, when the music, when you see like dragging the boat, it's like, oh, fuck yeah, it is ass kicking time. I want to rock right now. My name is Egyptian Danger and I came to get down is what I, the vibe I was getting. This is also going to be a mark out moment for me when he, you know, all we ever want out of fight scenes is for the fighters to use the studio space. So we've already seen the shipping containers get used. We're seeing him swing a tanker around like a baseball bat. This is awesome. Again, the fights are exceptionally done. The music is really great. It's that sort of that that coda that plays throughout when we see the monsters that womp 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 that sort of beautiful dreamer. I, I love it. It's really great. So on the Wikipedia, Gilman de Torres said like he wasn't trying to make this like uh, you know a mega death kind of movie. Meaning there's a lot of uh, expositional dialogue kind of sprinkled throughout, being like evacuate the cities. So he he wanted to give you the idea that the cities have been evacuated, which I didn't really even get that sense until I read the Wikipedia. Did you get that feeling at all? Like, these cities are empty. No one is dying. Not even a little bit. In fact, earlier in the movie, when we start to ramp up the idea of using Jaegers, or when, the, when we find out the wall idea doesn't work, you're seeing riots of people in coastal cities, you know, who feel abandoned or feel like they're going to be uh, left to be just sort of fodder. Whereas in my mind, if I've been living around the coast for about a decade now and kaiju keep coming out, I'm finding somewhere else to live. Yeah. It's like people who live in uh, New York City in the Marvel Universe. Get the fuck out of there. <laughs> but David, you think the Gypsy Danger is immediately going to kick ass, but it, it, it doesn't. Otachi is putting up a pretty good fight. And then at some point you see Gypsy Danger take a swing and it misses Otachi. You kind of, the camera follows Gypsy Danger's fist as it bip, 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 crashes through the walls of this building. And by the time it slows down, it hits some of those like little, like, I don't know what we call them, those silver little balls, the stress balls kind of thing. Executive balls. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And I don't know. It was such a weird out of nowhere gag, like visual gag that I was like, oh, please or whatever. But I was watching it with my feral wife. And as I was rolling my eyes and lamenting it, uh, she was like, you know, that was a really cool shot of the fist traveling through the building. So some people are into it. But how did you feel about this? Well, keep in mind, it's the second gag that they have like this where something, you know, a big Thing hits a small thing and you just kind of get the dink because just a few moments ago, the Jaeger and the Kaiju are fighting and the Jaeger slides and then like hits the edge of the dock and there's like a pelican on top of a bollard and it's like flies away. And it's like, we've, we're doing this twice within 10 minutes and it's a long movie as it is. You don't need this. So then the Kaiju like spits some acid at Gypsy Danger who dodges it, but we see the acid melt a building. And even though Gypsy Danger is now cut or ripped off the Kaiju's tail. The kaiju, but ba bang suddenly grows some wings and is now flying the Gypsy Danger into space. And all the Gypsy Danger is like out of ammo, it's out of everything. And then Raleigh says like, Mako, we're out of options. And Mako's like, uh, no, we're not, because I did my goddamn homework and we still got a fucking sword left. And then beep, 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 out comes a, a sword. Yeah, this is going to be another markout moment for me. This is going to be another splash page moment for me. When those wings came out, that was so rewarding. It was like, this is such an awesome payoff. You always want your villains to have that extra gear where you think you've got them and, oh, no, you don't quite have them like you thought you did. But then to, like, fly up, the Jaeger and the Kaiju are being flown up into space. The Jaeger pulls out a sword, cuts off his wings in the middle of the air. It's it's awesome. I, I, I marked out. Yeah, I can still picture the visual of they kind of do it a little bit in slow-mo, just shing, slicing open that Kaiju. But now they're falling back to Earth and they survive. And at some point... Uh, Raleigh says, Mako, talk to me. And again, aren't you drifting? Again, how does this work? I keep coming back to this. 
Because do you need to talk? Ah, I don't know. It's all a lot of hooey. Yeah, I'd almost, you know, I'd almost, they have this conversation in the drift, like create a mind palace that you can meet and have these sort of interactions. I love it. That would be great. But we learn the reason for Stacker's constant nosebleeds, and Mac, it's not good. He's got Jaeger cancer. I had Jaeger cancer for a while in college, David. Oh, no. Well, we, we get you through that. But Stacker ain't got time to bleed because two kaiju are coming through the breach, and they're both Category 4. It's a double event. Time to get moving on the nuclear option. Gypsy Danger is ready to go, but Chuck has a new drift partner joining him and Stryker. Stacker Pentecost. We're canceling the apocalypse. Also, Gottlieb brings Geisler a travel-sized drift machine, and the two rivals join brains to join with another brain, the brain of a dead baby kaiju. That's a lot of brains. So the crew of Gypsy Danger, they've they've just defeated uh, the two kaiju, and they come back. All the crew of the Shattered Dome are like super like, yeah! But then uh, Stacker Pentecost comes to talk, and everyone in the Shattered Dome, again, quiet, quiet as a church mice here. Because again, they know they are not the main characters. I love it. But yeah, in that fight, Herc was hurt. So Chuck needs a new partner. But to latch onto that idea of of Raleigh and Mako being greeted as heroes when they return, the crowd separates. The, you know, the, the workers, they, they part. And here comes Stacker, and he's like, in all my years of fighting... I've never seen anything quite like that. It was the verbal equivalent of like whenever you see someone, they draw their fist back like they're getting ready to punch you and then they bring it forward like it's a handshake. I love it every time. And that was kind of, that was that moment for me. Yeah, I mean, that's true. When you, you point that out, but at the same time, it's kind of, it's again, this character going back and forth where it's like you, you were already super impressed by him. That's why you <laughs> invited him. And I, I don't know. So we cut back to the streets of Hong Kong where in the destruction from the kaiju attack, we see Hannibal Chow's crews are like harvesting all the you know raw materials from these uh, kaiju corpses, and he's sending a crew to go and get the brain from Otachi so Geisler can drift with it again and learn more about the kaiju's attack plan. But they discover its secondary brain is destroyed. Oh no, you're fucked, Geisler! But wait, there's something else inside Otachi. It's a baby. It's a baby kaiju. And David, the reason why I like this is because I think Guillermo del Toro likes this. Okay. I think this kind of thing is what he thinks is neat. And I, I can tell that he's like the excitement of a unborn baby kaiju, which again, does this really make sense if they're genetically engineered monsters? Like you're sending these things in to destroy and then also like raise up. I don't know. You know, I, I get the feeling that the, the movie is excited about it. So I'll be excited about it. That's fine with me. However, there was a moment earlier in the movie where Geisler is comparing samples of kaiju. You know, he says, this one we got from Manila, this one we got from some other place, but they're six years apart. They're clones. You know, they're cloning each other just to create an army. So why is one of them pregnant, Mac? Or is it just on the, on the side? Is that just a little bit of a recreational? That's a, I don't know. That's interesting. That's a good question. So Geisler, he's now got his second chance at drifting with a uh, kaiju brain because the baby kaiju which just ate Hannibal Chow he's gonna stick a needle in it and drift and and Gottlieb shows up and Gottlieb's like all right you know what Geisler I'm gonna help you I'm gonna share the neural load that's what drift pilots do and David again this is a moment that could have really landed if these characters were two opposites that are coming together but again they're both cartoon characters it's like Yosemite Sam teaming up with Elmer Fudd. It's not the craziest thing you'll ever see in your life. Yeah, at most they're just annoyed with each other, but they can still join up when they need to. And they tap into the kaiju brain and they come up with, they realize something. And then Charlie Day's like, the Yeagers, the breach, the plan. Uh, it's a trap. It's not going to work. And David, this is not a great acting moment for Charlie Day. It's just a uh, kind of real, real embarrassing here. But you know what? Again, he might do better with a, maybe it's the script. I don't know. Because look, Charlie Day is super funny. Stacker, it's time for him to rally the troops. 
uh, which he does in a stirring speech, which he delivers this line. Today we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today we are canceling the apocalypse. David, what did you think of the speech? Not much, you know, especially since, you know, so this is supposed to be the rally speech. But like I said at the top of the show, when he asked, would you rather die here in a Jaeger? That's all the motivational speech I needed. I remember the line, we're canceling the apocalypse. But other than that, it's a pretty disposable speech. Yeah, I also remember that line was in the trailer for this thing. And if you're going to put that line in the trailer, uh, it's not going to hit in the movie because I already know it. So I don't know. Kind of a big whiff. So Chuck and Stacker are walking to, you know, the pilot, the striker Eureka. And Chuck is like, hey, I thought like, uh, you know, drift compatibility was like some big thing that you need to like test for and do all these montages to make sure you get right. What makes you think you and I are going to work? And Stacker says, uh, I bring nothing into the drift. Like I, I'm a blank slate. And which is like, that's a cool line. Like the idea is like, my, you know, he's like a fucking Zen warrior, right? Like he's mentally focused. He's meditating his way into complete nothingness to the fact that he's like able to, to drift with anyone. It's like, oh, that's a cool line. And then he immediately turns to Chuck and he goes, and you, you're a fucking uh, piece of shit with daddy issues. I figured you out on day one. You're not hard to match brains with. It's like, oh, what a cool leader here. You know, he's like, let me reassure you and then shit all over you. Yeah, but I think, you know, he knows his his company is shutting down, so he's allowed to be kind of a dick to the people who were a dick to him. I, I think it's very satisfying. And then Herc shows up and he's got his arm in a sling. That's why he can't pilot the Striker Eureka. He has a moment with his son. He's like, you know, oh, I'll never said some things out loud I meant to say. And Chuck is like, well, don't say now, Dad, or it'll make us gay. Chuck looks down at his dog. And he, Max, and he goes, I'm going to miss you. And it's like, oh, no, he's going to miss it. He knows he's dying, David. Because that wasn't like a, you know, see you later, boy. He's, he's, Diggs going to die. And then as he's walking away, Herc, it's like, Stacker, that's my son. That's my son you got there. And, and you think he's going to say like, you know, you need to bring him back. But he doesn't say it because he, he knows he's not coming back. And David, I don't think this movie fucking earned this, but I, God damn it, I got emotional during this one. I got the the weakness water coming out of my eyes. Ah, I didn't care for it. I'm with you. And, and I'll even go a little further and say Max Martini is going to be the sixth man of this movie. I, I think he's exceptional whenever we see him. And this, you know, he's rewarded in this moment by by selling this this scene. So we're, we're getting ready to load up. So Stacker and Chuck are going into the, the striker. And then we've got Raleigh and Mako. They're they're getting they're gearing up in the gypsy. Raleigh turns to Mako. They're getting ready to take off. And he says, you know, I've, I've never really thought about the future until now. And then he, he waits a beat and he says, you know, I never did have very good timing. Golly, this would have worked if there was chemistry, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, there's no chemistry. All of a sudden, he's springing this on her, which, you know, by the way, like you've said many times, he doesn't need to spring this on her. She's been in his thoughts. She should know how he thinks he feels about her. This almost felt like a waste of time. Yeah. Just sh- shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> let some of this stuff go inside. But I mean, you gotta, you gotta fill it up somehow. But David, they gotta get out there because we got two category four kaijus and their names are Scudder and Raiju. Now here, here I believe it. Uh, that kaiju is Scudder and this kaiju is Raiju. Like, this seems like some name that someone just pulled out of their ass. And so now it's starting to track. But Striker and Gypsy head to the breach, but have to fight off a few kaiju along the way. It's an action set piece we'll call round three. Scudder and Raiju versus Striker Eureka and Gypsy Danger. Fight. Striker is about to jump into the breach and drop their nuke when Geisler and Gottlieb arrive at the Shatter Dome with some key insight from their kaiju baby brain dome. The key to opening the breach is a kaiju corpse. 
Okay, was that worth a 40-minute subplot? No time to ponder that because a third kaiju arrives, Slattern! Slattern is an unheard of Category 5. The Category 5 is very big and it quickly disables the Straker. Stacker and Chuck decide their nuke would be most helpful clearing a path for the Gypsy. After some inspirational final words, Stacker detonates the Striker's payload, sacrificing himself and Chuck, and nuking everything on the ocean floor. Now, Slattern is a name of the kaiju I had to look up after the fact because I don't think they even have time to name it. And then I found out why they called it Slattern, David, because you know how a lot of mocap stuff in movies motion capture work is done by like Andy Serkis. Like he's, he played the ape in uh, Planet of the Apes and that kind of thing. And he played uh, Gollum. Uh, the motion capture for Slattern was done by Roger Slatterly. Mad Men's? Uh... The, very, the very same, yeah. Howard, Howard Stark. So David, this... It's an example kind of the ingenious part of the way that they pilot the Jaegers, right? And that is because the Jaeger pilots, David, they have to like physically act out the movements, right? Because they're like neurally linked to the Jaeger suit. And I think it's great because the effort of dragging their broken striker Eureka, like you you see the two Jaeger pilots, they're having to like physically act out that effort and you get more of a sense because otherwise it would just be like what? Like Captain Kirk sitting in the captain's chair you know, being like, oh, press the button harder. It, it's it's maybe a little cheesy, but you do get to sell the effort of fighting a little bit more by showing humans do it. Oh, absolutely. And you also get them to convey emotion because if, you know, you know, it, it's hard to have a fight combatant who doesn't express emotion. You know, you do cutaways to the Jaeger's face and it's not like grimacing or anything like that. So no, I thought this was very inventive, a way to sell to the audience. Hey, this isn't as easy as it looks. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like to continue the uh, spaceship metaphor, like if the Enterprise like had one of its little like blaster things, like you know, I don't know, its little engines blasted off, Kirk wouldn't grab his arm and be like, "My fucking arm," you know. But if <laughs> once a Jaeger arm gets cut off, you do see like Raleigh like grab his elbow, like, "Oh, it fucking hurts." But the the kaiju do a pretty good number on on the Jaegers, and to the point where where Stacker thinks it is a good idea to you know to sacrifice themselves. Like, hey, you know, we're not going to make it into the breach. We've got kaiju around us. Let's just blow the nuke and let's, you know, let's destroy these kaiju and clear a path for the lady, as Stacker says. And man, this is going to be my emotional moment, like we just had with with Herc and Chuck, where Stacker is, is talking to Mako over comms and he, and he tells her, like, you know, you can always find me in the drift, which is such a corny thing. But, you know, again, it's the character selling it. I like Idris Elba. I like him selling this moment. Yeah, do you think that uh, Stacker Pentecost and he's like, we'll take our nuclear payload and we'll detonate it right here. But you, Gypsy Danger, you have a nuclear core. So you need to take that nuclear core into the breach and detonate uh, the enemy that way. Do you think he was thinking like that they would sacrifice themselves as well? Or was he like, oh, you'll probably, you know, eject in time or something? I think he thought they would eject in time because, again, like in this moment, I think it's Stacker. I forget if it's Stacker or Raleigh initiates, but they're, one of them says to the effect of, you know what you've got to do. So there's a lot of like nonverbal communication going on. There's a lot of reading each other's thoughts in this instance. But yeah, I, th I think he trusted Raleigh enough to know what to do from here on out. So Raiju Kaiju, I think that's the Kaiju that can like swim underwater really fast. And at some point, Tindo, oh, fastest Kaiju on record, which thanks. Uh, but it's coming right at Gypsy Danger and Gypsy Danger pulls out a sword. And what does it do here? It kneels down, sticks the sword up, and the Raiju just swims right into it and right through it. This sword is going to split him in half, and this is going to be another markout moment. This is going to be, again, I'll say it a, a few more times here, but this is going to be a splash page moment where just the visual of them you know, holding their ground and just slicing through that Raiju, I, I loved it. 
Here's the problem with this movie, David. As frustrating as it is at times, this action movie has good action. <laughs> it does. For example, Striker Eureka, Eureka Striker. I don't fucking know. When it detonates its payload, it blows like, you know, a clearing. And the water that's in the ocean basically blows clear. So for, I don't know, half a second, it, there's like no water around the gypsy danger. You just see some fish like flapping around in the air. Like, what the fuck? I just got nuked and now I'm drowning in the, I'm, you know, suffocating. And then the water comes like right back. I thought it was a cool shot. Awesome. It was really cool. Yeah. So Gypsy Danger starts lumbering towards the breach and Geyser's like, what is it doing? And then we cut to Herc's face, right? Herc has just lost his son, right? Because they just detonated the payload. His son is dead. And Herc goes, finishing the mission. That moment on, Herc is like all business. So it's like, oh, I bet Herc's going to need a moment here. But then he doesn't need a moment. But David, if you are an actor, if you're Max Martini, and they're like, okay, Max, in this scene, your son just sacrificed himself. They're like, all right, so uh, I need to show that emotion on my face. And like, nah, we're not even really going to show it. Would you be pissed? No. I, I, if the example is specifically Max Martini and Pacific Rim, I'd be okay with it because, you know, we, we had the emotional moment earlier. And also, this is not a very easy moment to pull off. And I think Max Martini does a pretty okay job because he is mourning the loss of his son, but also... I got the sense he couldn't be prouder of his son, where it was like he did what he had to do in the moment. He sacrificed himself like a hero would. It's a tough thing to convey to an audience. I think he does all right. Yeah, I mean, when he says the Gypsy Danger is finishing the mission, you could tell how much he values that and how much he valued the sacrifice of his son. But just the fact that he lost his son and we didn't get an immediate reaction shot, I was like, I, I, you kind of expect it. And I wonder if Martini's like, well, there goes my Oscar or something. <laughs> uh, but the gypsy is heading towards the breach. But oh, no, the Category 5 kaiju is not dead. David, how are our heroes going to defeat this massive? Uh, don't worry about it, Mac. Our heroes easily kill it and ride the massive kaiju corpse straight to hell. Raleigh puts Mako in an escape pod so he can get the big hero's death. We get a glimpse of the alien kaiju factory before the Jaeger detonates, destroying the kaiju factory and sealing the breach. Mako's escape pod services. But no sign of... Ra Don't, David. He's, he's right there. Oh. But David Raleigh is dead. Oh, God, no. Oh, no, wait, he's alive. Oh, okay. But Raleigh and Mako touch heads as the credits roll. We get a very satisfying end, not unlike the end of Independence Day. You know, there's even... In Independence Day, and I think we refer to this in Prey also, there's, there's something we like to call the Oglarp moment. <laughs> and that is where you cut to the aliens, you know, living their lives, and then they see the end of their world coming, and they... This movie had that moment where they, they cut to a close-up of an alien and you can hear them hear him in your head saying, oh, Glarp, it's always welcome in any movie we see. David, this is actually one of my punch-ups because, yeah, you definitely <laughs> see uh, the alien's face. It's like, ah, Glarp, we're, we're Glarped. But I still wanted him to say, make a noise. I still wanted him to be, I still want it. We're going to get this, a subtitled reaction. We're going to get the Glarp and then also the, the, the translation for it. It's going to be a glorious day, Mac. David, I, I feel like we were transported to the movie RRR because uh, after Mako and Raleigh reunite after saving the day, they're in like a this lifeboat together. A very chaste uh, interaction between them because, I mean, this is the moment where, like, you know, it's the end of speed, like uh, Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves, time to suck face. But instead, they just kind of like touch foreheads and just exchange meaningful looks. This should be the most tender exchange. Tender. This should be the fucking hottest exchange you've ever seen because they've shared brains. They've had their heroes moment. They destroyed an entire race of aliens. Like they should be making out so hard that their faces kind of push in together. Like they're trying to get their faces on the other side of each other's heads. If that makes sense. Like 
They should be just smashing into each other. Yeah, spin on those fingers, Matt. Go, I'm coming for that prostate, Raleigh. <laughs> but David, this brings up a good question. What base is touching foreheads? That's not first. Is no, it? I think yeah. you got, I, I think that's when you get hit by the pitch. I think you get you get a free base. But what base is drifting? Oh, that's like um, that's one of those Bugs Bunny home runs that circles the planet. That's way beyond anything else. But David, these two, their non-sex is how we end this movie. All right, David, let's let's go to the big board. <laughs> <That's dope laughs> Timpani. Yeah. How many moms we got this thing? How many markout moments did you have? I had a lot. I had five when it was all said and done. Uh, how about you? I had two. Uh, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fun movie. Which begs the question, David, is this someone's favorite movie? I was not sure at first. I kind of struggled to figure out who would be the biggest fan of this movie. But Mac, you can always tell by the wiki of a movie. And like we said earlier, the, the wiki for Pacific Rim is is thick and rich. So I know there's got to be some fans out there who take this thing very seriously, and, I, and I'm happy for it. Yeah, I think it's someone's favorite movie because anytime you have a property like this, like a piece of IP that has like two movies, and then I think there's like a, there's an animated Netflix show, just two seasons. Any IP with that much content, there's someone who's watched them all and they just can't wait for more. So yeah, I definitely think it's someone's favorite movie. And supposedly this movie did so well in the international markets that it justified a Pacific Rim 3, which is what they're working on. All right, David, time for punch-ups. Everyone knows with Ultimate Script Doctors, David, how would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? I have a lot of punch-ups. None of them are too jarring or too severe. Um, well, maybe this one, actually. I think the movie's a little too shiny. It's really crisp, like I said, and that's, you know, that's a good thing when you're watching the movie in a theater. But like when you're trying to kind of live the experience of these characters in this movie, it, it feels too glossy. I almost want a little rust on these on these um, machines and on this machinery. Maybe a new director, maybe someone who's really good with grit, maybe like a John McTiernan or a Catherine Bigelow, something like that. Maybe even a Tony Scott, God rest his soul. But I, I want someone to kind of get in there with the movie. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, this almost feels like it might have been better if it was a Guillermo del Toro Presents kind of thing how one of the best Guillermo del Toro movies ever is The Orphanage. And he just, I think, produced that or something. I, I like the flourishes that feel like uh, GDT touches to me. But yeah, it would have been interesting to see what another director does with this. Like, maybe we have our chance with Pacific Rim Uprising. Oh, perhaps. Yeah, I, 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 I am looking forward to seeing that movie eventually. Me too. <laughs> well, here's the thing about eventually is most of the time, like Raid 2, we watch Raid 2. I've still not seen Raid 1. I want to, but I don't feel like a like a like a uh, immediate desire to go watch it. I honestly cannot wait to go watch Pacific Rim Uprising. Same, which I don't know what that says about me in this movie. Yeah, a couple more notes. I'll, I'll lump them in together because they both have to do with uh, with characters or with actors in this movie. The first one we can lose Gottlieb and Geisler. I think any everything they discover in their journey could have been discovered on like a tattoo. Or like a cave drawing. You know, we could have gotten that information some kind of way. At the very least, I'll say this. Don't have them go somewhere else. Don't have them go to the black market. Have them like stay on base and how and and discover this stuff. You know, have them running, you know, back and forth, sort of trying to figure this thing out. But you know, Gottlieb and Geisler don't really work for me. They don't work for me either. And same reason I talked about they're just like they're both cartoons. I think Gottlieb, you know, you need if he's a serious guy, make him serious. Because then when the fact they come together later in the movie, that would actually have some sort of like impact to it instead of just like, hey, can we stop these guys being on screen? It's, it's not great. My last note or my last punch up, there's a couple of roles that don't really work for me in this movie. 
That's going to be Hannibal Chow. That's going to be Ron Perlman's character. And that's going to be Raleigh. That's going to be Charlie Hunnam playing Raleigh. What if we did a little bit of musical chairs? And I'm going to go ahead and take Max Martini out of his Herc role and plug him in as Raleigh. And I'm going to take Charlie Hunnam, plug him in as Hannibal Chow. And I'm going to take Ron Perlman, plug him in as Herc. That sounds way more interesting, yeah. I want to like Ron. I generally like Ron Perlman in movies. I wanted more of like a cigar chomping, arms folded with a a sleeveless t-shirt kind of Ron Perlman. I think we could have had it and also improved the person playing Raleigh who's carrying the movie. Agreed. Uh, My punch up, my main one is explore the drift, explore that mental connection that these two humans have with each other. Like, what is that actually like? Because we kind of just see it as like one person experiences the other person's memories. But what would it really be like to just have your brain be full on, like naked and open and receiving from another person? Uh, that's interesting. And, and I would have would not have minded some more of that. Also, again, stuff I've talked about earlier, you got to ground some of this, Guillermo del Toro, because he does such a great job creating this world. I just wanted to feel like a little bit more real, I guess. And just there's some elements there that can just help ground it. And then, uh, yeah, I have the final punch up. I just want the alien to go, oh, glorping, glorp, just something. <laughs> All right, dude, please follow me into the Punch Mountain video store. David, as we know, this is an all action movie video store. We splurged. That's how I'm going to say it from now on out and got three copies of Pacific Rim. Since it's an all action video store, what subsections of action would you stock this movie in? My first two are going to be a bit of a cheat. In fact, I, I think there's going to be a lot of overlap on these Venn diagrams. I think one of them should go into creature action and one of them should go into robot action because those are two separate things. They just happen to meet in this instance. My third copy, you know, I considered bar action for a moment because this is a this is a pretty good movie to just sort of have on. You don't really need to follow the whole thing. You can kind of pick it up in drips and drabs, but it's not quite as gonzo as some of our other bar action movies have been. It's not one of those movies that's like, whoa, what the heck just happened on that TV? Let me suddenly pay attention. But I think it would be perfect in like a Best Buy to sell TVs to, you know, someone's walking past oh, there and be like, oh, yeah. So, like, oh, look at that. Look at how sharp that picture is. I'm going to buy that TV. So, Mac, <laughs> my third copy is going in Best Buy action. I think that first thing is, is spot on. Like, you'd have the kind of the kaiju shelf and then the robot shelf. And then, like, right in between the shelves, you get the Pacific Rim series of movies. I think GDT, he might warrant his own director shelf, at least like a section of it. So, I, I would maybe give that to him. But yeah, that, that Best Buy selling some TVs, that is spot on. All right, David, now we are down to it. It is time for Pacific Rim to have its place on Punch Mountain Revealed. Punch Mountain, of course, the definitive ranking of action movies. Now, David, just a reminder, at the summit of the mountain right now, the top five, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, Prey, and RRR. The bottom five there, the base of the mountain, 19, Passenger 57, 20, Deadly Prey, 21, Poseidon Adventure. And at the Visitor Center, David, right at the parking validation kiosk there, that little machine, it's number 22. It's Chappy. David, before we find out the mountains rankings, where would you rank this thing? Not too high. It, well, you know what? Where the fuck would I rank this thing? Because the action's awesome. Like, the, the second half of this movie's really cool. I had a lot of mark-out moments. You know, this movie is just meant to be a really disposable, turn-your-brain-off popcorn feature, and it, and it, it excels at that. But it's also a turn-your-brain-off-popcorn feature, and it doesn't quite develop characters uh, as well as some of these other movies do. It doesn't quite pay off as well as some of these other movies do. But goddammit, the rewatchability of it, like you can you know, turn it on at any time. There's a lot to like about this movie. Um, I could see it a strong middle. Yeah, I'm right there with you. It's like I had the same reaction to it where it's like, okay, I got to turn my brain off too many times to really get into this movie. 
So let me see, uh, maybe number three, like just the action. <laughs> the action is that watchable. And But then, yeah, David, I, I got excited to watch more of it. And I kind of wanted to like stay in this world. So I, I honestly don't know this. This movie is weird because look, just because it's an action movie podcast does not mean that we can excuse like the dumbest action movies. Not that this is the dumbest action movie. It's not. Oh, David, you hear that? That's uh, get out of the way. Uh, that's not a, a Jaeger destroying a city, David. Those are the, the rocks falling off the face of Punch Mountain itself. The golden letters are revealing the name Pacific Rim. And we see that it is the new number 10. Number 8, Dread. Number 9, The Rock. Number 10, Pacific Rim. Followed by The Woman King, Top Gun Maverick. And yes, Madam, we continue to pad the middle here <laughs> on Punch Mountain. We're getting thick in the middle, kind of like me. Oh, all right. Uh, no, I, I'm very happy with this. Uh, this is a fun movie. You know, I think some people are going to roll their eyes at, at some of the cheesier aspects of it. But if you stick around long enough for that action, it is going to pay off. David, you hear that noise? Oh, no, it's a kaiju. Evacuate the city. No, David, that's the horn calling us to action. Because in this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. And this month, we're spotlighting the Houston Food Bank. The Houston Food Bank is the nation's largest food bank, distributing food to 600 relief charities in 18 Southeast Texas counties, feeding over 800,000 people each year. The Houston Food Bank also provides community services ranging from nutrition education to assistance with food stamp applications and hands-on job training. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Houston Food Bank. Also, for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add an additional dollar to that donation, up to a certain amount, just in case any bots out there think they want to bankrupt us. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air. For more information on the Houston Food Bank or to donate directly to them, visit houstonfoodbank.org. If you'd rather look up a food bank that is closer to you for opportunities to volunteer or donate, by all means, we encourage that. And that'll do it for another week of Punch Mountain. Folks, don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week, from 2020 and directed by Kathy Yan, it's Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.